Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show, literally across the state of Georgia now, from the North Georgia Mountains to the Florida Line, from the Chattahoochee to the Atlantic Ocean. You can hear me all over the state. And we had a Democratic debate last night in Georgia. Joining me to get his take on this as the sun comes up across our beautiful state, Senator David Perdue. Welcome. Good morning, Eric. How you doing, man? I'm great. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I want to congratulate you, man. You're all over the state now, from Hay Hire to Hiawassee, man. I think that's pretty cool. Well, now i got to learn how to say all the names of some of the places. I know it's Cairo, <laughs> not Cairo, down in South. I'm learning. Yeah. <laughs> My South Georgia wife is correcting me all the time on how to say <laughs> <Good>. Albany. <laughs> so, all right, uh, Senator, you, you saw this debate last night. They're lashing out with this mythology that the Georgia election was stolen and that uh, you and Brian Kemp and everyone else are about to be swept out in a blue wave in the state. Well, let me first talk about voter suppression, what they talk about. What you heard last night was scripted. You heard three candidates on stage give the same scripted response about that. It's a conspiracy. They try to do this in 14 in my race. They try to do it in 16. They try to do it in 18. They claim voter suppression. PolitiFact today has an article. The headline is there absolutely no proof of voter suppression in the Stacey Abrams governor's race in Georgia. None. Zero. So this is a lie right out of the pit of hell, and they know it. And what they keep perpetrating, because they believe if you keep telling a lie long enough, pretty soon people believe it's the truth. Well, it's not. Voters, the turnout in, in 18 was almost double what it was the last off election, and we all know that in 14 in my election. So this is a, a pipe dream. Also, what you heard last night was another pipe dream about what their vision of America is. They believe that this economic miracle of the last 75 years was a, uh, a crime uh, put on the American people, is the way they call it. And uh, this socialist regime has been tried all over the world and failed, but they're still hammering it. Last night, Elizabeth Warren talked about that the, the crisis at the, at the border uh, was due to Trump, that Trump right. created the crisis and that she would take down the wall. I mean, good Lord, Eric. I mean, these people have gone crazy. I, I was struck by last night how uh, no criminal needed to be arrested, but suddenly law-abiding citizens who are wealthy, successful, or involved in the petroleum industry, those people are the ones who need to be thrown in jail. Well, this is a culture of victimization, and we know that people across all America know that's not who America is, and that's not the truth. But this, is, this fits their political mantra now. They can, look, the Democrats can't talk about their economic prowess. Look at, well, under President Obama, we had the lowest economic output in uh, U.S. history. They just about killed the economy. We can't look at their foreign policy. Look what a mess they left us with when they did the Syria reset, or the Russia reset and the Syrian red line. They, they left us with a disengaged America and the rest of the world. We're trying to correct that. They cut spending in our military by 25%, so they can't talk about all of that. So what do they talk about? Oh, a new vision for America. We're gonna go do what Russia and Cuba and Germany and Venezuela tried to do and all failed. But these guys are smarter than all those people and they're gonna take us down this road toward a socialist euphoria. It's a pipe dream that fits their self-interest, not what's best for America. I, I was really struck last night how they said, for example, and Stacey Abrams has said this, that uh, 70, 80 percent of Americans are with them on on abortion rights. And yet there's new polling out of Georgia from the HAC in, in what I think is a deeply flawed poll. And yet it still has you and Brian Kemp above 50 percent, despite the fetal heartbeat legislation. Well, it does. And, and I, I never put any faith in those polls. Anyway, that's the same poll that had me down eight to right. 10 points exactly. in 14, and, and we came back and won by more than eight. Uh, I, I know how that poll was skewed toward uh, younger voters. I know that was skewed there intentionally, and others are as well. So 
But, you know, what, what I keep looking at is what I hear when I travel the state, Eric. And people in the state want core values. You know, this is still a conservative state. The Democrats think this is a 50-50 state. It is not. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of people moving in. But, my God, Georgia is, the, 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 for the seventh straight year, the best state in the country in which to do business. There's a reason for that. We have a state legislature that works. We've had three governors now that understand what pro-business means. And we are uh, a business-friendly state. And we're also an education state where we provide great workers. Uh, so this is what brings jobs to Georgia. Well, Senator, listen, I, I know we've, we've got a lot of listeners down in the Bainbridge and, and Quitman and Cairo area, and one of the issues that came up last night was climate change. They didn't directly address the fallout of, of Hurricane Michael and the like, but it's it, Democrats have been a, an obstacle in the House and the Senate to finally getting funding for those farmers down in South Georgia. Heard a lot of talk about farmers in Iowa, but not a whole lot about farmers down in South Georgia. Well, you know, I heard uh, somebody say the other day they, they've got athlete's foot and it was bl- they blamed it on global warming. You know, I don't know how <laughs> yeah. that works. But, um, look, we had a devastating uh, hurricane down there. We've had them before. Um, we reacted to it. We came together as a state. Uh, we got down there and helped people. Now the president broke through the logjam. We've got disaster relief flowing. Um, so, you know, the, the, the debate cannot be about the things the Democrats have failed on. So they're going to all these other things that are esoteric. To, to try to distract and create noise around their ultimate failures of the policies that they have perpetrated. Let me just give you a couple examples. Since the Great Society was signed, first of all, um, in 1965, Lyndon Johnson took Social Security Trust Fund, put it on the budget, and then used the surplus in Social Security at that time to pay for the Great Society. And the Great Society failed in its war on poverty because uh, in, in 2017, the poverty rate was the same as it was in 1965. And yet, in the last two years, Eric, as we now know, two and a half million people have been brought out of poverty because of this growing economy that we have created. Well, you know, I want to ask you on that. Georgia has now tied the record low back in 1976 for uh, record low unemployment. We've got a a record number of jobs. The number of jobs that have been created in the state has been so good. And yet last night, I, I... all I heard from Democrats was we need to disrupt the success in our economy uh, to and I'm not exactly even sure that to help people who have jobs, apparently, but aren't billionaires. It really didn't make a lot of sense. Well, none of it makes sense because none of the people on that stage have any real experience, no executive <laughs> experience and, and no experience in the free market system. So they want to destroy the free market system, move to state control. Um, and then let the state decide these things for you. I mean, the Affordable Care Act was a good example. I mean, they want the state. They told you that if you wanted to keep your doctor, you could, and if you wanted to keep your insurance, you could, but you couldn't. And so the state dictated what you could do with your insurance and what you could do with your doctor. And, And this is only the beginning. When they start talking about the state doing all credit and things like that and doing away with small town lending, taking over our lives, this sounds draconian because it is, and this is what they have in mind. They want to do away with the filibuster rule up here. They want to add D.C. and Puerto Rico as new states. They want to add four seats to the Supreme Court, and they want to do away with the Electoral College. And what they're describing is a one-party democratic system. It's a socialist democratic system because you really don't have a representative democracy at that point. Well, in mentioning the private sector there, I noticed that Kamala Harris bragged openly last night on stage that she's never actually worked in the private sector. She's always worked as a government employee. And I'm kind of scratching my head wondering how she can be a president who understands the private sector economy when she's never even touched it. Well, they don't even claim to understand it. They just don't want it. 
So because they don't understand it, because they've never participated in it, they don't understand how risk-taking, capital formation, innovation, the rule of law, uh, great workforce, they don't understand all those components created this economic miracle. This is the greatest economic miracle in the history of humankind, and we've enjoyed it since World War II. And yet these people, including the lady who ran for governor in Georgia last year, says that, oh, no, that cheated everybody. If you're successful and you make a profit, you must have cheated your employees or your, or your customers. And nothing could be further the truth, because if you did that, you wouldn't be in business for very long. And people who really have valid, real business experience know that. Well, listen, before you get off of here, I, I know our time is short, but I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about impeachment at this point. I'm, I'm still wondering if the Democrats can't persuade any Republicans why they're even headed down this road and would be interested in your perspective on it. Well, first of all, this is a show trial. Uh, the headline of the Washington Post, Eric, um, and you've talked about this on your show, the headline of the Washington Post um, in January of 2017, when Donald Trump was sworn in, on that day, the headline of the Washington Post here was, and I quote, the campaign to impeach this new president has already begun. So these people have been trying to undo this democratic process that we had in 2016 that elected Donald Trump. The bubble up here and all these career politicians on the Democratic side who have no experience in the free market system don't understand how this guy got elected, and they've been fighting and obstructing ever since. We've been fighting through. We, we passed regulation changes, uh, energy changes. We produce more oil and gas than anybody else in the world today. We passed a historic tax bill that makes us competitive, and we freed up somewhere around 5 to $6 trillion that's coming back into this economy. And on top of that, we saved our small banks. Under Dodd-Frank, uh, perpetrated by a supermajority by Democrats in 2009 and 10. We lost 3,500 community banks. You can only have to go to small town uh, in South Georgia and see how devastated these small banks were. We've reversed that. The Democrats want to go back to what they did before and perpetrated this ultimate failure on the American people. Senator, thank you for stopping by today and talking to me. I got one last question for you. I, I, I see these Democrats are out there trying to find someone to run against you, and uh, they seem to be absolutely convinced that Medicare for All is going to be their winning platform, from Teresa Tomlinson to to Ted Terry out there. And and I'm just, as someone who worked in the private sector and and campaigned on on fighting back against this, I just I would like your candid take, if you don't mind, on how you're seeing this Democratic field shape up against. You. Uh, well, uh, let me first address this. Uh, I, it's socialized medicine, and, and I have been in countries, worked in countries where that existed. And I can tell you, it bifurcates health care delivery. It makes sure that people with money get great care and people who don't get mediocre care. And the worst thing about it is we can't afford it. I mean, look, Medicare trust fund goes to zero in seven years, Eric, and they want to pile 81% of our workforce who get their insurance through their employer. They want to take that insurance away from them. Now, watch the state control here. This is the state telling you you can't have insurance through your employer. We're going to force you to put it on this government-controlled socialized medicine platform that, oh, by the way, is going to zero. The trust fund goes to zero in seven years. It is absolutely incredible that these people are even consciously talking about that. Look, my race will be what it is. Uh, I believe that Georgia... The people of Georgia know that what's trying to be perpetrated on that in that governor's race, the lady who ran for governor raised 85% of her money from outside Georgia. These people in California, New York, and Illinois tried to come down here and steal that governor's seat. They're going to try to do it in two Senate seats, and we're not going to let that happen. Senator, thanks very much for stopping by this morning. Sure appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Eric. It's always good to be with you. Thanks.
Senator David Perdue, uh, he's up in Washington, D.C. today uh, at work in the Capitol, but he called yesterday and said, hey, <laughs> happy to come on and talk about the, the debate. <laughs> yes, yes, you should come on and talk about the debate. I want to talk about the debate. Senator Perdue has had his say. I want to go on to commercial break, and when we come back, I will give you my say. on the. It was actually a very interesting debate. Uh, let me give you my quick hot take. Uh, if you watched the debate last night and you thought, these people are nuts and there's nothing here for me, well, you were watching the debate in the wrong frame of mind. This was a Democratic debate for Democratic voters. If you're a conservative listening to me right now and you watched the debate last night and were horrified by it, that, that wasn't a debate for you. I actually give MSNBC real credit for running a debate where they actually ask Democratic candidates questions that Democratic voters want answered. And I think it's really striking that we don't get Republican debates like this. Republican debates are always designed to cater to the left, and the Democrats went full left last night with MSNBC, and we get a real sense of where they stood. But we'll get into the actual meat of it when we come back. Thanks again to Senator David for Purdue for stopping by. You know, I got to tell you, I'm I'm kind of proud of the work we're doing here. It, being able to have a radio show that is a Georgia-based show that can be uh, across the state of Georgia now, so Georgia voters can actually hear from Georgia's elected officials uh, in a one-stop shop. Um, it, it's it's just great, and uh, hearing from people from the White House as well. I'm 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 happy. We came up with this idea and, and are continuing to see it grow. We'll have some big announcements coming up on uh, new stations picking us up. That really does put us across the entire state of Georgia. Uh, we, I, I got to get into the Democratic debate. We've got a lot of audio from the debate to play. To begin, though, we should set the stage that Joe Biden uh, sent out a post-debate fundraiser saying he hoped he made everyone proud in the debate. The problem is he sent it out about five hours before the debate began. <laughs> he had a number of gaffes last night, including um, that the only black senator, black female senator endorsed him in Kamala Harris. I oh, know that would be me. He meant the first of uh, the first black female senator endorsed him. Uh, I, I assume he was distracted. Congratulations to Joe Biden uh, for having a new grandchild you did not know you had. Uh, Hunter Biden failed a paternity test in Arkansas. Apparently, he was taking the, the grassroots monitoring and, and the poll watching very seriously and has a love child in Arkansas. I, I think the headline out of this is that there's a love child in Arkansas and the last name is not Clinton. Uh, it, it's Biden. Uh, fascinating how the Democrats always go to Arkansas for their love children. Um, but congratulations to Joe Biden for his new grandchild and for maintaining his lead after last night's debate. Listen, there was not a fatal blow to Joe Biden last night. There really wasn't one to Pete Buttigieg either. They tried to make it about his experience, and he pushed back hard on uh, Midwestern versus Washington experience. I've got to tell you, though, my sense from watching people last night is that Republicans were impressed with uh, Buttigieg's pushback. Uh, that he had uh, mid Midwest experience and military experience. He didn't have Washington experience. And uh, the Democrats, I know, did not like him pushing back aggressively against Washington, D.C. It was fascinating, the balance there. I, I am only now really being made aware of the fact that uh, there are a lot of progressives who hate Pete Buttigieg in large part because uh, they think he comes across as too straight and too white. Um, and, and he's gay. He's married and gay. And yet they think uh, there, there's a lot of Democratic criticism out there now that he's too white and, and comes across as a straight dude. 
And so he gets uh, demerits from the left for this. I, I I don't understand this level of identity politics on the left. I, I, I really do not. Uh, I am happy to take your phone calls on the debate reaction. If you if you watched it or you heard about it, you heard the clips of it. The phone number here, the phone lines are open, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. That's 877-973-7425. You know, it was a good debate. Now, I I, I got to clarify how I say this because I don't want your heads to explode. But this was the debate Democrats needed. Uh, a lot of the debates these days, even in primaries, are tr- reporters trying to figure out how they can get politicians to connect with people on the other side. Uh, when you watch the, the CNN debate or some of the other debates that have been out there for um, the CNBC debate, the, the rest, when you watch them, what tends to happen is the, the debate moderators ask questions that don't try to probe the differences between the candidates per se, but, but try to find where those candidates might be able to make a play for the middle ground. And the Democratic debate last night, the moderators uh, were willing to push them to the left and push them to go on the attack against uh, the Republicans. You have said already that you've seen enough to convict the president and remove him from office. Will you try to convince your Republican colleagues in the Senate to vote the same way? How central should the president's conduct uncovered by the impeachment inquiry be to a Democratic nominee's campaign? How central would it be to yours? After the bombshell testimony of Ambassador Sondland today, has that view changed for you? How central should the president's conduct uncovered by this impeachment inquiry be to any Democratic nominee's campaign for president. How central would it be to yours? Mr. Ray recently told Congress, quote, the majority of the domestic terrorism cases that we've investigated are motivated by white supremacist violence. Congresswoman Gabbard, to you, as president, would you direct the federal government to do something about this problem that it is not currently doing? Vice President Biden, you've suggested in your campaign that if you defeat President Trump, Republicans will start working with Democrats again. But right now, Republicans in Congress, including some of whom you've worked with for decades, are demanding investigations not only of you, but also of your son. The Me Too movement has forced a cultural reckoning around the issue of sexual violence and harassment against women in America. Are there specific actions that you would take early in your administration to address this problem? The Republican Party never stopped fighting President Obama in his eight years in office. So what would you do that President Obama didn't do to change that? Right now, Roe versus Wade protects a woman's right to abortion nationwide. But if Roe gets overturned and abortion access disappears in some states, would you intervene as president to try to bring that access back? Governor John Bell Edwards in Louisiana is an anti-abortion governor who has signed abortion restrictions in Louisiana. Is there room for him in the Democratic Party with those politics? Would you support a potential criminal investigation into President Trump after he leaves office, even if you thought it might further inflame the country's divisions? Yeah, see... They let them have at it from a Democratic perspective. There was no trying to reach out to Republicans. There was no trying to reach out to moderates. It, it was um, drag the Republicans, burn their house down, impeach and take out the president, and move further left on abortion rights. And that's actually what we needed to hear last night. Uh, you and I, on on the, the extremism of the Democratic Party and how far left it has moved, but more importantly, having the Democrats talk to themselves. 
Republicans are so frequently denied this opportunity in the media. Uh, Republican debates tend to be focused on, well, how are you going to reach out to Democrats or moderates? And and the the moderators tend to be of the left, uh, members of the media who lean left. Uh, This was a debate where you had a bunch of left-wing reporters asking increasingly left-wing questions to Democrats to find clarity on common ground on the left. And that's what the Democratic Party needs to find their person. And it looks like they're probably going to settle for Joe Biden. Joseph and Dalton texted me this. Well, I shouldn't say texted me. He emailed back this morning. He got the recipes yesterday, made them for breakfast this morning. Uh, I'm glad to be keeping people up in Dalton fed and and the rest of the state as well. If you want the recipe list, text recipe to 33777. And if you want to call in and talk about the debate or impeachment, you can call here 877-973-7425. That's 877-97-ERIC, E-R-I-C-K. The Democrats on stage last night. You know, I I, I said again, and, and I stand by it, that the... Debate was good because it was a conversation of the Democratic partisans talking to a Democratic crowd for a Democratic base. It was striking to me how they really wanted to uh, send in a, a bunch of grievances uh, and it, they wanted to amplify those grievances. And they even wanted to go after, like, what I was talking to David Perdue about it at the beginning of the show, uh, prosecuting oil executives uh, who haven't broken the law. Here's Bernie Sanders. about the need to make climate change a national emergency. I've introduced legislation to just do that. Now, I disagree with the thrust of the original question. Because your question has said, what are we going to do in decades? We don't have decades. What the scientists are telling us, we don't get our act together within the next eight or nine years. We're talking about cities all over the world, major cities going underwater. We're talking about increased drought, talking about increased extreme weather disturbances. The United Nations is telling us that in the years to come, there are going to be hundreds of millions of climate refugees causing national security issues all over the world. What we have got to do tonight, and I will do as president, is to tell the fossil fuel industry that their short-term profits are not more important than the future of this planet. And by the way, the fossil fuel industry is probably criminally liable because they have lied and lied and lied when they had the evidence that their carbon products were destroying the planet and maybe we should think about prosecuting them as well. They're criminally liable, the fossil fuel industry. This is kind of ridiculous, but he wasn't alone in in some of the crazy things. (laughs) Elizabeth Warren had lots to say. Let's talk about Medicare for All. Senator Warren, you are running on Medicare for All. Democrats have been winning elections even in red states with a very different message on health care, protecting Obamacare. Democrats are divided on this issue. What do you say to voters who are worried that your position on Medicare for all could cost you critical votes in the general election? So I look out and I see tens of millions of Americans who are struggling to pay their medical bills. 37 million people who decided not to have a prescription filled because they just can't afford it. People who didn't take the tests the doctor recommended because they just can't afford it. So here is my plan. Let's bring as many people in and get as much help to the American people as we can as fast as we can. On day 
one as president, I will do uh, bring down the cost of prescription drugs on things like insulin and EpiPens. That's going to save tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars for people. I'm going to defend the Affordable Care Act from the sabotage of the Trump administration. And in the first hundred days, I'm going to bring in 135 million people into Medicare for all at no cost to them. Everybody under the age of 18, everybody who has a family for income less than $50,000, I'm going to lower the age of Medicare to 50 and expand Medicare coverage to include uh, vision and dental and long-term care. And then in the third year, when people have had a chance to feel it and taste it and live with it, we're going to vote and we're going to want Medicare for all. (laughs) No, we're not. We've already got Obamacare. Remember, Obamacare hasn't been repealed and and people haven't liked it. Uh, And she's convinced that people are going to like the government. No, what's going to happen is they're going to undermine private sector health care insurance, so we're never going to be able to go back. Um, just just bizarre. Uh, she also uh, went off on John Bell Edwards. You know, she wouldn't say it. Uh, Rachel Maddow, to her credit, I thought it was an insightful question. She, she asked if there's a place in the Democratic Party for John Bell Edwards, the recently reelected Democratic governor of Louisiana who signed one of the most restrictive um, pieces of, of pro-life anti-abortion legislation in the country. Um, it, it, was, it was more restrictive than what Brian Kemp signed in terms of our fetal heartbeat legislation. And Elizabeth Edwards wouldn't say, no, he's not welcome here. But she pretty much did say that by saying in her Democratic Party, everybody's going to be for killing kids. Just this weekend, Louisiana reelected a Democratic governor, John Bell Edwards. He has signed one of the country's toughest laws restricting abortion. Is there room in the Democratic Party for someone like him, someone who can win in a deep red state, but who does not support abortion rights? Senator Warren. Look, I believe that abortion rights are human rights. I believe that they are also economic rights. And protecting the right of a woman to be able to make decisions about her own body is fundamentally what we do and what we stand for as a Democratic Party. Understand this. When someone makes abortion illegal in America, rich women will still get abortions. It's just going to fall hard on poor women. It's going to fall hard on girls, women who don't even know that they're pregnant because they have been molested by an uncle. I want to be in America where everybody has a chance. And I know it can be a hard decision for people, but here's the thing. When it comes down to that decision, a woman should be able to call on her mother. She should be able to call on her partner. She should be able to call on her priest or her rabbi. But the one entity that should not be in the middle of that decision is the government. The government, you know, Right now, the government is in the decisions, is it not? The government forces us to pay for killing kids. The government says it's a constitutional right. The government says we got to provide money. The government says uh, we can't decide in our state we don't want this to happen. Uh, it, it's it's crazy that she thinks it is government involvement. Meanwhile, the government is so highly involved. The government won't even allow the federal government won't even allow states to say, "Hey, you got to have basic health care standards." What is very interesting, though, is that she refuses to mention John Bell Edwards. She cannot bring herself to talk about it. You know, she wouldn't campaign for John Bell Edwards. She doesn't want 
pro-lifers in the Democratic Party. And you know who that's going to drive out of the Democratic Party ultimately? Hispanic voters. Hispanic voters as a block are the most pro-life constituency in this country. And Elizabeth Warren's entire campaign, including her statements on health care, are designed to to placate uh, upper-income white people who live in urban areas. Those are the people who, even in the focus groups last night, resonated most with Elizabeth Warren. It, it, rich white people in cities, they like her. Um, I'll tell you who a lot of people are praising for a good performance last night. Surprisingly, Cory Booker, uh, he had a, a standout moment with Joe Biden with one of his funny lines. Uh, for, for the vice president, he is swarmy into my office as a hero. This week, I hear him literally say that I don't think we should legalize marijuana. I, 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 I thought you might have been high when you said it. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, because, because marijuana, marijuana, marijuana in our country is already legal for privileged people. And it's one, the war on drugs has been a war on black and brown people. And so let me just, let me just say this. With more African-Americans under criminal supervision in America than all the slaves since 1850, do not roll up into communities and not talk directly to issues that are going to relate to the liberation of children because there are people in Congress right now that admit to smoking marijuana while there are people, our kids are in jail right now for those drug crimes. You know, that was actually a good line from him. Uh, it, it stood out. It made him stand out. I was actually kind of impressed that Booker was willing to go there on several things. It, it, it's interesting he's not getting traction off the debate stage. In fact, he pointed out in his closing argument uh, for why you should vote for him that he hasn't even qualified yet for the Democratic debate. Maybe he will. Joe Biden responded to him, by the way. Number one, I think we should decriminalize marijuana, period. And I think everyone, anyone who has a record should be let out of jail. Their record's expunged. It be completely zeroed out. But I do think it makes sense, based on data, that we should study what the long-term effects are for the use of marijuana. That's all it is. Number one, everybody gets out, record expunged. Secondly, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm part of that, that Obama coalition. I come out of the black community in terms of my support. If you notice, I have more people supporting me in the black community than announced for me because they know me. They know who I am. Three former chairs of the Black Caucus, the only African-American woman that ever been elected to the United States Senate. A whole range of people. No, my point no, is that's not true. true. The other that's one is true. here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I said the first. Thank I said the first. Thank so my point is, my point is, one of the reasons I was picked to be vice president was because of my relationship, long-standing relationship with the black community. I was part of that coalition. <laughs> I mean, he, he meant first, and I get that, but th- that was the only good debate performance Kamala Harris had last night. Hey, I, how is she so bad at this? You know, I, I, I got to be honest with you. I think if I were in a room with Kamala Harris and we weren't talking politics, we would have a good time. Uh, she she has a jerk chicken recipe. I want her recipe. Um, I, I think we could have a good conversation on a lot of stuff. She seems like a pretty personable person, and her Senate colleagues actually kind of like her. Even the Republicans do behind the scenes. But she's not good at this, and she comes across she comes across worse than Teresa Tomlinson running for the Senate here in Georgia. Teresa Tomlinson running for the Senate here in Georgia 
Georgia is an opportunist and she conveys whether she intends to or not that she would stab her own mother in the back to get ahead. And Kamala Harris kind of comes across like that. Uh, she she did real good with Joe Biden uh, early on, on on the she was one of the the black children in the buses who got better education that Joe Biden tried to stop and put him on defense and really dinged him and her polling went up and then she completely flubbed it after that. She cratered, and it's like she went on hyper defense or something. And I'm, I'm, I completely befuddled by Kamala Harris's performance. She doesn't know who she is on the campaign trail. She doesn't have consistent messaging on the campaign trail. Her entire performance seems to be on defense, uh, and it just the whole thing is very striking to me about how she's completely cratered and she doesn't know what she stands for. She doesn't have a position. Uh, I'll tell you someone else who probably burned bridges last night. I think that Tulsi Gabbard, she went after Pete Buttigieg and I'm trying to find that clip. I I haven't got it yet. Um, I'm trying to find her exchange with Pete Buttigieg. I think she came out short of the stick. She shined against Kamala Harris and took Kamala Harris out. I mean, really, uh, wiped out Kamala Harris. If, if anyone is to blame for Kamala Harris cratering, it's Tulsi Gabbard. But increasingly, she's playing to a Republican crowd on the Democratic stage. This may be the last debate she makes it to. She's only here. No, no, no. She'll be in the December when she did qualify because of Hillary Clinton. Uh, Hillary Clinton taking out uh, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, going after her, bumped her up. Uh, she's on this debate stage in large part for that as well. Uh, here's part of what she said last night. Well, let's see. I'm logged into the wrong system, aren't I? I will get to um, get to Tulsi Gabbard here in one minute. Uh, now that they've got these, so I use a system, a database that plugs all the stuff up, and they're still loading all the clips. Let me get to Tulsi Gabbard here uh, because you know she did say something that resonated again with a lot of Democrat or with a lot of Republicans last night. The problem for Tulsi Gabbard, though is that the line that she used resonated with Republicans and the Democrats got mad at her. Yeah, sorry, folks. This is me this morning. Everything is rerouted here because of my David Perdue interview. Here we go. That our Democratic Party, unfortunately, is not the party that is of, by, and for the people. It's a par- it is a party that has been and continues to be influenced by the foreign policy establishment in Washington, represented by Hillary Clinton and others' foreign policy, by the military-industrial complex and other greedy corporate interests. You know, that will play well to the Ron Paul part of the of voters out there. That, that'll play well to them. It'll play well to some Republicans, and it'll play well to some of the fringy progressives. But to make it about Hillary Clinton on a Democratic debate stage, when precious Hillary is now viewed as a martyr, is not something that's going to go over well with your average Democratic voter. Interestingly enough, I've got to note something here on Elizabeth Warren as well. Uh, Elizabeth Warren had a line in in this about her wealth tax and how her wealth tax is going to cure the political divide. And one of the people who took after her was Cory Booker. I want to play Elizabeth Warren here. Back to America for all people and not just for some. Thank you, Senator. Senator Warren, you have cast yourself as a fighter. If you were elected, though, you would be walking into an existing fight, a country that is already very divided over the Trump presidency, among other things. Do you see that divide as permanent or do you need to bring the country together if you become president to achieve your goals? So. 
I think the way we achieve our goals and bring our country together is we talk about the things that unite us. And that is that we want to build an America that works for the people, not one that just works for rich folks. You know, I have proposed a two-cent wealth tax. That is a tax for everybody who has more than $50 billion in assets. Your first $50 billion is free and clear. But your 50 billionth and first dollar, you got to pitch in two cents. And when you hit a billion dollars, you got to pitch in a few pennies more. Here's the thing. Doing a wealth tax is not about punishing anyone. It's about saying you built something great in this country, good for you. But you did it using workers all of us help pay to educate. You did it using your getting your goods to on roads and bridges all of us help pay for. You did it protected by police and firefighters all of us help pay the salaries for. So when you make it big, when you make it really big, when you make a top one-tenth of one percent big, pitch in two cents so everybody else gets a chance to make it. And here's the thing. That's something that Democrats care about, independents care about, and Republicans care about. No, because they've already paid the taxes too. We all paid our fair share already, and Cory Booker, to his credit, went after her on this. No, again, I, I agree with the need to do all of those things. We're all united in wanting to see universal preschool, and I'll fight for that. We're all united in wanting to fund HBCUs. Heck, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for two parents that went to HBCUs. But the tax, the way we're putting it forward right now, the wealth tax, I'm sorry, it's cumbersome. It's been tried by other nations. It's hard to evaluate. We can get the same amount of revenue through just taxation. But again, we as Democrats have got to start talking not just about how we tax from a stage, but how we grow wealth in this country amongst those disadvantaged communities that are not seeing it. Look at VC dollars in this country. 75% of them go to three metropolitan areas. There is worth in the inner city. There is value in our rural areas. If I am president of the United States, we're going to have a fair, just taxation where millionaires and billionaires pay their fair share. But dear God, we're going to have pathways to prosperity for more Americans. We're going to see a change in what we see right now. Small businesses, new, new startups are going down in this country. You know, that was a very compelling point from him uh, for a Democrat, I think, to, to be on stage because Elizabeth Warren's uh, wealth tax uh, out of a if only out of jealousy plays well with a lot of Democratic base voters. And for Cory Booker to come in and say, we're going to have just taxation. We're not going to do the, this uh, cumbersome tax that doesn't work that other countries have tried and daring to say that on stage to his Senate colleague. I thought it was a good thing uh, for him to do. It was a good pushback. And frankly, the crowd liked it too. Why? Because Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax plays well with rich white people, but no one else. Why? Because more and more people think if I get ahead in this country, Elizabeth Warren's going to penalize me for getting ahead. And that translates across demographic lines. Tell you one thing that made Democrats mad. Of all the things to get progressive activists mad, it was this from Joe Biden. When President Ford pardoned President Nixon, he said it was to heal the country. Would you support a potential criminal investigation into President Trump after he leaves office, even if you thought it might further inflame the country's divisions? Look, I would not direct my Justice Department like this president does. I'd let them make their independent judgment. I would not dictate who should be prosecuted or who should be exonerated. 
That's not the role of the president of the United States. It's the attorney general of the United States, not the president's attorney, private attorney. And so I would, whatever was determined by the attorney general, I support it, that I appoint it. Let them make an independent judgment. If that was the judgment that he violated the law and he should be, in fact, criminally prosecuted, then so be it. But I would not direct it. And I don't think it's a good idea that we mock, that, that, we, that we model ourselves after Trump and say, lock him up. Look, we have to bring this country together. Let's start talking civilly to people and treating, you know, the next president who starts tweeting should, anyway. It, it, it just, we, look, it's about civility. We have to restore the soul of this country. And that's not who we are. That's not who we've been. That's not who we should be. Follow the law. Let the Justice Department make the judgment as to whether or not someone should be prosecuted, period. You know, uh, I I got to tell you, I I think he's right there. I think it is a, a third world country that goes after um, presidents after they're out of office. Uh, it's been my one hesitancy with a lot of Republicans saying go after Hillary Clinton. Yeah, was there injustice there? Yeah. Should she have been prosecuted? Yes. Is there a double standard there? Yes. But when you go down the road of doing this to a prior president or, or prior administration, uh, you're setting the precedent they're going to come after you as well. And frankly, this is about the president's family. Uh, you go after Hillary Clinton, now Donald Trump, they're going to come after you and your family. And that's, that's regrettable. That, that's that's, that's uh, something that shouldn't be done. And I think Joe Biden is right here. What I find most interesting is that there are Democratic partisans today attacking Joe Biden because they want him to go after Donald Trump. They want to chant, lock him up on the floor. This is, it's staggering to watch Democratic partisans go down a road that even Donald Trump himself has not been willing to go down for Hillary Clinton, though he's been tempted to, and to watch them get mad at Joe Biden for saying, hey, perhaps we shouldn't go down this road. When we come back, we got other stuff to get to, including impeachment. There's more hearings today, and we got some Georgia news to talk about, too. It is that time for me to tell you all how awesome the Quip electric toothbrush is. Don't don't fast forward through this. Stick around. Listen. Uh, because it's the truth. I use my Quip every day. My daughter uses hers. My wife uses hers. We got to get our 10-year-old on a regular brushing schedule. I'm, he's That's another story for another day. Quip is a great toothbrush, folks. Uh, you can go out, as I have, and buy the $100 Sonic toothbrushes uh, that supposedly do some sort of brilliant job. They don't fit in the back of my mouth. I don't think they fit in the back of anybody's mouth. They're so poorly designed. And you got to char- take the charger with you wherever you go. It's, it, they're terrible in design. The Quip was designed, you can tell, by Denison designers working together. It fits in the back of your mouth, so you can get a good brushing at the back of your teeth. Uh, it, it vibrates uh, great for two minutes, get your teeth really clean every 30 seconds. It pulses, you can so you know it's time to move it in your mouth to a different location, so you get an even cleaning. It is great, and every three months, they send you a new brush head uh, on a subscription service. It is great. Um, everything is designed great with quip it works on a single AAA battery you don't have to carry a charger with you i just I, I really do love this product i've been using my quip for two years well before i ever advertised for them on radio i was using quip because i like them 
Uh, it generates great healthy toothbrushing habits. My dentist keeps thinking I'm bleaching my teeth. I'm not. Just on and on, I could brag about it, but see it for yourself. Go to getquip.com slash Erickson right now. You'll get your first refill pack free. That's your first brush head refill pack for free at getquip.com slash Erickson. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. Getquip.com slash Erickson. Start brushing your teeth with healthy habits with Quip. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to call in, 877-97-ERIC, E-R-I-C-K. That translates to 877-973-7425. David Perdue stopped by last hour. If you want to listen to it later, get the podcast, text the word SHOW to 33777. Text the word show to 33777. The Washington Examiner, uh, Atlanta Goodman uh, reporting right now, an investment firm linked to Hunter Biden received over $130 million in federal bailout loans while Joe Biden was vice president and routed profits through a subsidiary in the Cayman Islands, according to federal banking and corporate records reviewed by the Washington Examiner. Federal experts say the offshore account corporate structure could could have been used to shield earnings from U.S. taxes. Rosemont Capital, an investment firm at the center of Hunter Biden's much-scrutinized financial network, was one of the companies approved to participate in the 2009 federal loan program known as the Term Asset-Backed Securities Loan Facility, or TALF, under the program. The U.S. Treasury Department of the Federal Reserve Bank issued billions of dollars in highly favorable loans to select investors who agreed to buy bonds that banks were struggling to offload, including bundled college and auto loans. There you go. All righty then. Um, listen, I think it's very interesting that among the general public, the perception of Biden's electability has gone down even while his polling among Democrats stays strong. It stays strong in large part because of uh, Joe Biden's support within the black community. And uh, Democrats tried to make hay out of that last night, and it did not work well for them. Um, it just it wasn't a, a it wasn't a good debate in terms of beating back Joe Biden as the front runner, even though Biden actually did have some moments in the debate where it was questionable as to what was going on here, like uh, Xi Jinping. I'm putting pressure on China in order to be, for them to make sure that it is a non, it is a nuclear-free peninsula. And the way we do that is we make clear to China, which I have done personally with, with, uh, with uh, the president of China, and that is we're going to move up our defenses. Yeah, with, uh, with, uh, with uh, the president of China. Here's Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC last night. And then there's the Biden debate, which was scored as a kind of flawlessly solid debate for him until... Yeah, this colossal gaff, where it, it's it's a gaff unlike any other I've seen in in a debate performance because it's literally about a person who's standing on the stage, who he in this moment has forgotten exists, and he's referring to when he's making his point that he has a very important presidential endorsement from what he said was the only black woman elected to the United States Senate, and he meant the first. That's Carol Mosley Braun. And I may be the only person in the audience who knew he, who he was talking about. Oh, we uh, you know, I mean, well, you we know, know. I mean, <laughs> look, but, 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 you know, that is as as 
he couldn't have reached for a less important endorsement. To but cite, gaffe or mm-hmm. wrong word? Uh, it, look, we know what's in his heart. We, we know we know it's in his heart. We know he's a good guy. Uh, but the fact that you leave the black woman standing on the stage, standing in the shot, saying, "What about me?" That that that's was within the dynamic of that gaffe. Oh, she handled herself well. In fact, she thinks she had a good debate. He was talking about Kamala Harris last night's debate. She went on Morning Joe. With the black community. I was part of that coalition. All right. Joining us now, Democratic presidential candidate, Senator Kamala Harris of California. My gosh, up bright and early. (laughs) I don't know how you're doing these hours, all of you. It's like two and a half hours sleep. Really? (laughs) How do you think it went last night? I thought it was a good night. I thought it was a good night. A lot of important issues were covered, and um, and you know, the, this is there's so much at stake. And you know, as I say uh, often, if not all the time, you know, justice is on the ballot. And so, talking about the various injustices, including um, the, the the subject matter of the impeachment process, yeah. um, it's an important discussion. So, moving forward strategically for your campaign, what are the challenges? How do we get the debate stage down to two or three candidates, and how do you make sure Kamala Harris is one of them? Yeah, I, you know, Mika, the the reality, you know, I, I'm just into real talk at this point. I mean, the yeah. reality is that um, the the top of the you know the the top of the field, many have been on the stage for decades. They're familiar, they're known, and um, and they have named ID for that reason. And so my challenge is to to up my name ID and, and introduce myself to people. You know, a large part of it is the fundraising piece. I, I need to raise the money to to be on TV in Iowa. Um, you know, as soon as possible. It's, that's just a crude fact of, of running for president. And until we have campaign finance reform, which will be one of my first areas of focus when elected, um, until that happens, that's a part of the process. Wait a second. Wait a second. She's just said on Morning Joe that uh, she's got to shake down taxpayers to keep campaigns alive that aren't viable on their own. Wait a second. You know, yesterday Kamala Harris tweeted that uh, when uh, Pete Buttigieg was defending his time as a McKinsey consultant, uh, she said she she never represented corporations. In fact, she never represented anyone. She got paid zero uh, by anyone other than the public sector. She has been on the public dole forever as a politician, uh, grifting off taxpayers since day one. She's never had a job in the private sector. Uh, David Perdue and I actually talked about this in the first hour, and, and he said it really is interesting to watch uh, this situation where you've got a bunch of Democrats, many of whom have never worked outside of government, uh, many of whom have never had a job other than being elected, and they somehow want to think they can command and control the private sector economy by command and control economy. And I don't know that that's going to go over very well well with a lot of people. Um, let's see. Can I move on from a well? No, 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 no. There's one more thing we need to talk about before we go on from the debate and the Democratic politicians. You know, impeachment hearings are happening today. We'll get to that. Uh, we've also got to get to Kelly Loeffler and Doug Collins. Uh, Matt Gatz attacked Brian Kemp last night. I, I want to uh, talk to you about that. But we need to talk about Pete Buttigieg for a minute. Uh, I want to play you this audio from Joy Reid. There was a big 
deal last night in the debate about Buttigieg and his support within the black community or lack thereof support in the black community. And there's Joy Reid talking about Buttigieg. Brown feels dangerous. LGBT community feel their marriages are in danger, in danger now. And so the idea of uniting and coming together, that sounds fine for Pete Buttigieg to say, you know, to middle class white America that wants to come together with their uncle who's a Trumper. That is not going to work in communities of color. And I think one of the fundamental challenges that Pete Buttigieg has is that he's not communicating to my community right now. He's not communicating to my community at all on issues like policing. People want to know why he fired that police chief. Getting, you know, saying that he's got a great, you know, long-term plan for black America, that's lovely. That's he speaks huge. very well. Yeah. He's quite articulate. That is not helping people who are afraid and who want to know, can this guy connect to me? Can he connect to black people? Can he speak to African-American fears of the police? He's having a hard time doing that. And if he, can, if he can't do that, he's not going to get the chance to change America on the world stage by being president of the United States. Because, sorry, even if he wins Iowa... Voters in South Carolina right now are sticking with Biden. I don't see that changing, even if he were to win Iowa, because he's not proving something to South Carolina voters the way that Barack Obama had to do. He's a white candidate who's quite popular with white voters. That says nothing to South Carolina voters who want to know, what are you going to do about policing and voting rights and things that we care about and immigrant issues and get those kids unlocked out of those cages? So he's got to make a transition into the rest of the Democratic Party. Yep. He's having a real hard time resonating. CNN has had to point out that he had zero support in South Carolina among black voters. Zero support. Zero support from black voters. Which is pretty striking when you consider that black voters are going to, particularly black women, are going to be predominant within the Democratic debate. Uh, when you when you realize that black voters are going to make up a, a disproportionate share of primary voters in the South for the Democrats, and, and maybe disproportionate isn't, isn't uh, a good word there. They're going to overwhelm other voting blocks within the South. Uh, I found, by the way, the exchange between Tulsi Gabbard and, and Pete Buttigieg. She tried to pull on him what she pulled on Kamala Harris, and he pushed back, and her voters are really offended by it. I thought he got the better of her. I, I, I want to play this for you. I was talking about U.S.-Mexico cooperation. We've been doing security cooperation with Mexico for years. Now, yeah, I should I should set this up a little better. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard accused Pete Buttigieg of wanting to invade Mexico with American forces. He actually did say he was in favor of sending American troops into Mexico. She called him out on that. And now he's saying it's about cooperation with Mexico. With law enforcement cooperation and a military relationship that could continue to be developed with training relationships, for example. Do you seriously think anybody on this stage is proposing invading Mexico? That, that's not I'm what talking I said. About that's not what I said. Up, I'm talking about building up alliances. <laughs> and if your question is about experience, let's also talk about judgment. One of the foreign leaders you mentioned meeting was Bashar al-Assad. I have, in my experience, such as it is, whether you think it counts or not, since it wasn't accumulated in Washington, enough judgment that I would not have sat down with a murderous dictator like that. Congresswoman Gabbard, let me allow you to respond. Thank you. 
You were asked directly whether you would send our troops to Mexico to fight cartels, and your answer was yes. The fact checkers can check this out. No. But your point about judgment is absolutely correct. Our commander in chief does need to have good judgment. And what you've just pointed out is that you would lack the courage to meet with both adversaries and friends to ensure the peace and national security of our nation. I take the example of those leaders who have come before us, leaders like JFK, who met with Khrushchev, like Roosevelt, who met with Stalin, like, Donald like Trump Reagan, who met... <laughs> Look, I think he got the better of her in that exchange. Uh, her voters may disagree with that, but I, but I absolutely think he got uh, the better of Tulsi Gabbard. And uh, she's been playing off this bounce with uh, Hillary Clinton attacking her, and it will only get her so far. Now, we need to move on. Uh, in fact, you know what? Looking at the clock, I'm going to go on and take a commercial timeout because I can because it's my show. And when we come back, we're going to pivot. We will move past the Democratic debate. We need to talk about Kelly Loeffler, a name you might need to become familiar with. She is certainly, I'm getting a lot of people reaching, a lot of people reaching out uh, to me in Georgia politics about her. You probably do not know who she is. Uh, the rumor is she may be your next senator. I know nothing. I have not talked to anyone um, with Governor Kemp. Uh, Doug Collins saying, regardless, if, he, if it's not him, he may run, uh, threatening to sabotage, potentially, uh, the, uh, a, a safe GOP seat. We will see. Uh, this kind of does escalate where the governor's got to go with this pick, and we need to break this down for you. I'll tell you what I know, what I'm hearing from people from Washington to Atlanta on Kelly Loeffler and when the governor may actually make up his mind on replacing Johnny Isaacson when we come back. As I mentioned, we need to move into uh, some Georgia news here, including uh, the news of Kelly Loeffler at the last minute uh, before Brian Kemp cut off the deadline for people to apply uh, to be in the Senate. Uh, Kelly Loeffler applied. Uh, Kelly Loeffler is a um, executive who she's got ties to Georgia Power. Um, let me just read you from the AJC. She's the head of a financial services firm. She co-owns the WNBA franchise and she's applied for the U.S. Senate job, becoming the highest profile business executive. Uh, she seems certain to be top tier, according to the AJC. More than 500 people have applied. And, and let me give you some, some background here. She's a Republican mega donor who could self-finance a Senate campaign that's expected to shatter fundraising records. She could also appeal to suburban women. She considered bids for public office before, including in 2014. She thought about running for the Senate uh, the, in the race that David Perdue got into. She decided not to. At the time, her company uh, purchased um, her, uh, the New York Stock Exchange, and that prompted her to decide against running. Yes, uh, the company that she runs bought the New York Stock Exchange. She served as a senior executive with uh, Intercontinental Exchange and uh, helped navigate purchasing the New York Stock Exchange. She stepped down last year to serve as chief executive at BACT, a financial services firm that's a subsidiary of Intercontinental Exchange. She grew up uh, weeding soybean fields in Bloomington, Illinois. She moved to Atlanta in 2002 
Um, she became the chief of investor relations for uh, an energy trading platform. Uh, she married the company's CEO, Jeff Spreaker, uh, after joining the firm. They married in 2004. She's been, uh, Spreaker had been involved in Republican politics, and uh, she plunged into conservative politics with a $750,000 donation to Mitt Romney's uh, presidential super PAC in 2012. Uh, she's a co-owner of the Atlanta Dream, and she would be the second woman in Georgia history to be in the Senate. Rebecca Latimer Felton was actually the very first uh, woman to serve in the Senate. Uh, she from Georgia, and Loeffler would be the second if she's picked. Um, she says in a statement, if chosen, I'll stand with President Trump, Senator David Perdue, and you to keep America great. Um, together, we will grow jobs, strengthen the border, shut down drug cartels and human traffickers, lower health care costs, and protect our national interests at home and abroad, says uh, Kelly Loeffler. She would be an interesting pick. I got to tell you, a lot of executives uh, and, and people in, in major corporations have been reaching out to me in the last uh, 48 to 72 hours to find out what I think about her name uh, being circulated. She's definitely getting noticed as well in Washington, D.C. The folks uh, close to the National Republican Study Committee, folks close to Mitch McConnell have all reached out to see what I think about her. She's an intriguing pick. I have not known much about her. I have delved into uh, who she is and what she stands for. The big question a lot of people in Georgia have, particularly on the conservative front, is her position on life. I am told she is pro-life. Uh, and I am told that she would vote for the president's judges. That's a big concern for conservatives. I don't know if she'll be the pick. Meanwhile, uh, Congressman Doug Collins is reportedly uh, considering a Senate uh, challenge, a Senate run, if he's not the pick. Uh, Matt Gatz, the idiot congressman from – I'm sorry, I, I do not like Matt Gatz. I, I do not like him. Um, I, 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 I don't think he's a, a help to Republicans. Um, but Matt Gatz tweeted – to Brian Kemp that uh, he knows he wouldn't have gotten elected without President Trump's support and he needs to do a favor for President Trump and pick Doug Collins. Uh, after the Loeffler name came out, there was massive, uh, massive effort from some to pressure the governor to go with Doug Collins. I actually think that works against Doug Collins. Uh, Brian Kemp and I, uh, we're not a lot alike, but we share a common personality trait in that when a bunch of people tell us to do X, the odds of us doing X uh, rapidly shrink to almost zero. Uh, I do not like being pressured by people to do things. And uh, my my typical reaction is when uh, the media demands that I do something or when the press or when, when Democrats, when Republicans all demand I take a position, the odds are I'm not going to because I think the herd mentality is an abomination. And this we have right now, a herd mentality for Doug Collins. And I think uh, Collins also coming out and letting it be known he may run for the Senate if he's not the pick also hurts Doug Collins. Um, and it, the odds go up that it's going to be someone like a Kelly Loeffler or, or a Jason Anavitarte, who I, I'm friends with and, and think the world of and think would be a great guy. He's the on the Paulding County Board of Education. Uh, he's got a big background in politics here in Georgia. He's got a, a big fundraising base within the Latino community, and looking at the demographics in Georgia, I think it makes sense to go with uh, someone from the Latino community. That being said... In the northern suburban area, Republicans are panicked about women and whether or not women will vote for Brian Kemp, whether or not women will uh, turn out and support the president. 
having a conservative woman actually helps the GOP in the northern suburbs. In Cobb County, in Gwinnett County, it helps. It helps someone like Karen Handel uh, running against Lucy McBath. It, it helps in the 7th Congressional District. It, it helps in those areas where the GOP needs women to come back into the fold. It also makes a very interesting dynamic for the Democrats in that they will probably have to go with the woman as well. You know who it hurts? It hurts Sarah Riggs Amico and Teresa Tomlinson uh, because the, the demography boxes will get checked in the Isaacson race where the Democrats try to find a, a probably a black female other than Stacey Abrams to run uh, to, to counter someone like a Kelly Loeffler or even a Jason Anavitarte. They will try to find someone with a demographic pick there. But I think this actually hurts Doug Collins. The reaction from his camp and from Matt Gatz does him no favors with Brian Kemp. I, I mentioned uh, David Perdue called in in the first hour. If you want to listen to that, you can text the word show to 33777. Uh, we'll get the podcast out later today. One of the things he touched on uh, out of the gate was what he called a lie from the pit of hell. Stacey Abrams uh, losing because of voter suppression. The, the real Democrat mythology on stage at their debate last night over Georgia. One of the things I find very notable is this continued claim that somehow uh, a pro-abortion position from the Democrats will help them in places like Georgia, uh, believing the Democrats are shifting dramatically on abortion. And that's not so. And I think the proof is in the AJC poll. And, and Purdue and I both have our criticisms of the AJC poll. Uh, remember, this is the poll that had him losing significantly to Michelle Nunn, and uh, he won pretty. He won basically by the margin that the poll showed him losing by. I think we can adjust in the AJC polling and show that Purdue is actually in a good place. And in fact, the polling had him at um, 50% approval. And if he's at 50% approval in an AJC poll that's skewed towards graduate uh, degree people, well, that actually means that he's probably at 55, 56% approval. And he probably will, in fact. Uh, is probably close to 48 to 50% uh, support right now. In fact, uh, 11 Alive in Atlanta has a poll out, and uh, you, you've got support for the president around uh, 48% in Georgia, which Purdue has got to be higher than that. Kemp certainly is. So I, I don't think he's in danger, and I think this idea that somehow uh, pro-life legislation is going to hurt us is, is not being shown out in the polling. But the Democrats are continuing to peddling that mythology, and they're continuing to peddle the mythology that Stacey Abrams somehow lost because of voter suppression. Remember, um, had Stacey Abrams gotten the votes that she claimed she should have been able to get, she would not have actually won. She would have just gotten into a runoff, and she would have lost the runoff. Now, why would she have lost the runoff? Because there has never been a, a runoff in Georgia. Pay attention to this one. There has never been a runoff in Georgia going back to the late 90s where Democrats turned out at a higher rate than Republicans. Uh, the Republicans do very well in runoffs in Georgia. Remember, one of the reasons we have runoffs in Georgia is back during the late 80s, early 90s, as the state was beginning to shift uh, after Bill Clinton was elected president, a lot of Democrats began shifting to the GOP. You had the huge wave in 1994 of Republicans and Tom Murphy, who was I think he was from from Bremen, Tom Murphy, the Speaker of the House. He got the rules changed or he got the law changed to allow libertarians ballot access. And the reason 
is because uh, he thought, if anything else, that would divide the Republicans and it would allow the Democrats a clearer path to victory. And then ultimately they, they instituted the runoffs uh, where if you didn't get 50 percent of the vote, you would have to have a runoff. And the problem there was that in the early to late 90s, early 2000s, with the rise of Paul Coverdale and, and the next uh, wave of uh, next generation of Republicans in Georgia, uh, suddenly what you had is Republicans getting into runoffs and winning big. And in 2002, it all came crashing down with Sonny Perdue beating Roy Barnes. Uh, you had Sonny, you had uh, Saxby Chambliss in his race against Max. Uh, no, 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 it was it, it, Martin. He was running against, oh, what was it, Martin, I think, for his uh, re-election to the Senate after having beat Max Cleland, uh, went into a runoff and Saxby dominated. Um, and it was the, the libertarian foil was pushing runoffs into uh, clear Republican versus Democrat races and Republicans started winning. Uh, Stacey Abrams would not have won in a runoff. Now, here is the PolitiFact on this voter suppression claim in Georgia. And by the way, you should know PolitiFact is a left-wing organization. PolitiFact hires a bunch of reporters who resent like hell that you don't believe the press. And so now they call themselves PolitiFact and they give themselves the veneer of truthfulness when they really haven't earned it. But nonetheless, here we go. Several Democrats running for president said in the November debate that voter suppression was to blame for Stacey Abrams' narrow loss in the Georgia governor's race in 2018. Senator Cory Booker said during the debate in Atlanta that right here in this great state of Georgia, it was the voter suppression, particularly of African-American communities, that prevented us from having a Governor Stacey Abrams right now. Two of his opponents, Bernie Sanders and Amy Klobuchar, mentioned voter suppression or purges as a factor. It is not just voter suppression, which cost the Democratic Party governorship here in the state, not just denying black people, people of color, the right to vote. But we also have a system through Citizens United, which allows billionaires to buy elections, Sanders said. I have led the way on voting, and I can tell you right now one solution that would make a huge difference in the state would be to allow every kid in the country to register to vote when they turn 18. If we had a system like this, and we did something about gerrymandering, and we stopped the voting purges, and we did something significant about making sure we don't have money in politics from the outside, Stacey Abrams would be the governor of the state right now. By the way, uh, in Georgia, we have motor voter ID. When you get your driver's license, you're signed up. If you get your uh, driver's license under 16, when you get to 18 and, and you get an an adult license, you get signed up to vote. Now, here is what PolitiFact says. We previously found it isn't possible to prove if any election law or policy in Georgia cost Abrams her narrow loss. Abrams lost by almost 55,000 votes in a race with record turnout for a midterm race. The claim is a good talking point, but the evidence is missing, says University of Georgia political scientist Charles Bullock. Kemp made some controversial decisions that probably hurt Democrats overall, but it's difficult to determine exactly how many people were prevented from voting. Daniel Takaji, who teaches election law at Ohio State University, told PolitiFact, the only really honest answer is that no one knows for sure how much voting was depressed by the alleged acts of voter suppression, he said. Kemp drew scrutiny for high numbers of voters removed from the voter rolls during his tenure because they skipped previous elections and had no contact with election officials. By the end of 2017, 670,000 people, or about 10% of voters, were removed from the rolls. The state flagged 53,000 registrations as part of a 2017 law that requires exact matches of for a person based on a state and Social Security record. 
The Associated Press found that the majority of those flagged voters were African-Americans. Mismatches occurred over differences as small as missing hyphens. We can't know how many eligible voters would have shown up and cast ballots for Abrams if they were not removed or were confused. By blaming voter suppression for Abrams' loss, Democrats ignore other factors in her uphill battle. She ran in a state where Republicans have dominated statewide races for decades while calling for more gun control, expanding health care, and decriminalizing certain drug offenses. Her message appealed to minorities and infrequent voters, but Kemp, who boasted he could round up criminal illegals in his pickup truck, won more conservative parts of the state. The focus on voter purges also admits that voter registration surged under Kemp, outpacing population growth. Critics of claims about voter suppression point out that Georgia had record turnout. 538, a website that analyzes election statistics, found that an estimated 55% of eligible voters exercised their right to vote, about 21 points higher than the state's 1982 to 2014 midterm average. So the turnout, if you take the average turnout from 1982 to 2014, the turnout in Georgia in 2018 was 21 points higher. Real hard to say that there was voter suppression given that. But the Democrats want to cling to mythology. They need to cling to mythology. They need to cling to mythology because they've got to nurse grievances. They have to nurse grievances because that is their path forward to get back into office. It is unfortunate uh, that in Georgia we are at a point where we have a bunch of Democrats trying to make people angry to win elections. But I think that goes largely to um, the point I made yesterday, that Republicans need to be mindful as we've got this grievances nursing uh, by the Democrats that the Republicans can have a positive message. Let's just say hypothetically, let's say hypothetically, Kelly Loeffler, uh, the WNBA uh, franchise owner, business executive, she's the nominee in Georgia. What should her message be? I got to tell you, uh, I, I don't think it should be that the Democrats are going to wreck everything and the Democrats are socialist and screw, excuse me, screw the Democrats, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think what Kelly Loeffler's message or any Republican's message, what David Perdue's message for re-election should be is we have a really good economy. We have low unemployment. We have the highest number of people in Georgia working ever. We have a government that is functioning and staying out of our way. We have a government that is deregulating. We have a government that is doing the minimal necessary to keep things going while allowing us to take our destiny into our own hands. And what the Democratic solution is, is more government, more interference, and more regulation. And that will drive up costs to businesses. It will drive up your taxes. And it will increase the likelihood that you lose your job. So you're making it about the Democrats, but you're really making it about your record. Loeffler, as a business executive, has an argument that she knows what it takes to keep the economy going and the Democrats don't. Whoever the Democrat is who runs against her or any of the other Republicans is going to be a Democrat who more likely than not has spent a long time in elected office uh, living off of taxpayers. And I think having a successful businesswoman 
would actually be an interesting contrast there to make the case that, in fact, uh, Georgia can take care of Georgia. We don't need Washington to take care of Georgia. In fact, uh, Washington taking care of Georgia would not be a good thing, in large part because Washington taking care of Georgia would mean Georgia can't take care of itself. There's your message if you're a Republican running in Georgia in 2020. This is a message not about Donald Trump. This is a message about those individuals. And undoubtedly, uh, the media and the Democrats will try to tie any Republican, particularly David Perdue, to Donald Trump. And David Perdue has signaled he's okay being tied to Donald Trump. But Perdue, like all these other people, he's got a winning message on his own. He doesn't need to be tied to Donald Trump. Uh, he voted for tax cuts that simulated the economy, that put more money in your pocket, that kept the economy firing while the rest of the world is slowed down. Uh, and if the Democrats get in office, that's going to go away. The economy is going to slow down and you're going to be out of a job. The end. He's got a great message. What is the Democratic message? The Democratic message is Donald Trump bad and we need more government. It's a hard message. Listen, Donald Trump bad is not a hard message. Uh, a lot of people dislike the president. You may love the president. A lot of people dislike the president. But when you've got a Republican running saying, hey, this isn't about Donald Trump. This is about Georgia and what's best for Georgia. And what's best for Georgia is keeping the president's tax cuts, even if you don't like the president. What's best for Georgia is keeping the deregulatory positions of the Trump administration, even if you don't like the president. What's best for Georgia is having more conservative justices and judges who aren't going to impose their values on Georgia, even if you don't like Donald Trump. What's best for Georgia is is having a robust economy uh, that can withstand a global economic slowdown, and that's from President Trump's policies. You may not like President Trump, but like the results of a strong economy and tax cuts. They got wiggle room in this. What we saw in Louisiana, what we saw in Kentucky, what we saw in Virginia— what we saw in Mississippi is that Republicans who run on their own platform with their own message are still doing well because fundamentally, while in the suburbs, a lot of voters don't like the president, they still consider themselves conservative. So make a conservative. Don't make a rah-rah Trump message. Do not. Li- listen to me. If one of you people is the Senate nominee listening right now, this is my advice to you. Do not make 2020 about the president. Do not make it about standing with the president. Do not make it rah-rah for the president. Do not do that. What you have to do is make it about yourself, your issues, your values, your platform, your message, uh, your thoughts on keeping the economy strong. In Louisiana, it worked. In Kentucky, it worked. In Mississippi, it worked. In Virginia, it worked. All of the candidates who ran in all of those states who made it about their platform, their agenda, their message, and the economy won. All of the candidates who made it about standing with the president, rah-rah the president, have the president's back, stop impeachment, lost. Matt Bevin lost. Uh, What's his name in Louisiana? Lost. Um, In Mississippi, uh, a a couple of the Republicans lost their longtime House seats because they didn't have a message other than the president. In Virginia, it was very interesting. If you look at the Republicans in the state legislature, the ones who ran aggressively on local issues won. The ones who ran on Donald Trump lost. Voters in suburbs don't like Donald Trump right now. You may like him. But suburban voters overall don't. Your anecdote is not data. My neighbor's neighbor's son's postman's milk delivery person loves Donald Trump. I don't care about your second kissing cousin's neighbor once removed, whatever, son's girlfriend's boyfriend, whatever. What I care about is the data. And anecdote is not data. 
uh, put together thousands and thousands of anecdotes and suddenly you have data. And what the thousands and thousands and thousands of anecdotes put together as data called statistical accurate polling show is that suburban women in particular don't like the president. But guess what they like? They love their 401ks. They love their husbands 401ks. They love that their children are moving out of the basement and getting jobs. And so there's your message, Republicans. Your 401k is doing well. You have a good-paying job. Your children are finally, after all of these years, leaving your basements, moving into apartments, and themselves getting jobs. So let's keep it going. And the way you keep it going is not to vote for Elizabeth Warren's socialism and for all scheme. It's to return Donald Trump to the White House. And hey, vote for X, Y, and Z for Senate, Congress, state legislature, what have you. Um, There's a message there. It doesn't have to be about the president. The fact that the Democrats want to make it about the president tells you everything you need to know about why it shouldn't be about the president. He doesn't play well with suburban women right now, but by God, they love their 401k and intuitively understand the Democrats will wreck it. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Y'all, I'm having a hard time seeing how Rudy Giuliani gets out of this without being the fall guy. But I got to tell you, the Sondland testimony was troubling if you paid attention to it yesterday, but people don't care about it. Here's this from Dana Perino about uh, voters and impeachment. Did no one on this planet told you Trump was trying to aid to tie an aid to investigators, yes or no? And he says, yes, no one ever told me that. And I think the Republicans will try to say, there we go. Now, we saw, I talked about polls earlier today. Like the, the polls on impeachment are not going in the Democrats' favor right. at all. And, well, maybe I shouldn't say at all. On the ones that we've seen so far, um, especially like in Wisconsin, an important battleground state. Right. Eight percentage points more than before do people say, we don't think impeachment's the thing. That doesn't necessarily mean he's going to win, although he's up against all the other possible opponents. But I think that if you have a persuadable, you don't have many persuadables. Democrats are going to say he's guilty. The Republicans are going to say he's not. Yeah. There aren't a lot of persuadables out there. And, you know, increasingly, this is where I am on impeachment, that uh, the country is too divided. The Democrats have not done a good job of reaching across the aisle, uh, building their case for impeachment. But I got to tell you, the objectively so, I think the Sondland testimony should bother Republicans. Here's Ken Starr. Yes, because we've gotten closer to the president, but just for the reasons you identified, the president may have covered himself by saying no quid pro quo, the record is muddled. So we have Gordon Sunland's understanding. It doesn't look good for the president substantively, but I want to make a different point. The chairman began with essentially pulling out the Richard Nixon articles of impeachment, figuratively speaking, and he pointed to the third article, contempt. Contempt in the sense of you've stood in the way of this investigation. I was then, I thought that was very intriguing. Point two, then Ambassador Sunland spoke vehemently and bitterly about his lack of access to records to help him. Then thirdly, the very first questions from Mr. Goldman went exactly to obstruction. You have not had the ability 
to refresh your recollection, you're not a note taker, and so forth. So we already have one article of impeachment. And the third article of impeachment in the Richard Nixon situation is very clear, it's very succinct, it's very well done. Yep, you see where he's going with this. David Hale as well um, is testifying. We've got more testimony today. Uh, let me play you some other soundbite from Fox News so you kind of get a flavor for how some people are viewing what Sondland and others said yesterday. As, as Brett mentioned, I think that what Gordon Sondland was trying to do here was protect himself more than he is to protect anybody else. Uh, to a certain degree, he took out the bus and he ran over President Trump, Vice President Pence, Mike Pompeo, John Bolton, Rudy Giuliani, Mick Mulvaney. He implicates all of them. And one of the things is it pains to say is this wasn't a rogue operation. I wasn't a freelancer. Everybody knew. Everybody was in the loop on this. I think one of the keys is going to be going to the specific points of contact between him and the president because there are a couple of points where he says uh, it was abundantly clear, uh, uh, my personal presumption, my belief, uh, and, and, and he's not saying directly that the president told him these things, and specifically he says the president never Never told me that there was any condition between aid, as opposed to the White House meeting between military aid and Zelensky announcing the investigations. Yeah, yeah. listen, Sondland knows he screwed up. He knows he screwed up because in his original testimony, he tried to cover for the president and all these other people ratted him out that his testimony contradicted everyone. So Sondland had to come back in and he had to throw everybody under the bus. And, I mean, he threw everybody under the bus. Rick Perry, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump. And he clearly did deserve to throw Rudy Giuliani under the bus. This is becoming a big issue, including uh, Fiona Hill testifying uh, and uh, a couple others who are scheduled to testify today, the last day of public hearings on impeachment. And Rudy Giuliani is, is the target of all of them. They're not actually targeting the president. They're targeting Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani is going to be the fall guy here, but nobody's paying attention. And when we come back, I want to explore why no one in America other than super partisans are paying attention to impeachment. And maybe the media can learn a few lessons from this because it has a lot to do with them. It is that time for me to tell you all how awesome the Quip electric toothbrush is. Don't, don't fast forward through this. Stick around. Listen. Uh, because it's the truth. I use my Quip every day. My daughter uses hers. My wife uses hers. We got to get our 10 year old on a regular brushing schedule. I'm, he's, that's another story for another day. Quip is a great toothbrush, folks. Uh, you can go out, as I have, and buy the $100 Sonic toothbrushes uh, that supposedly do some sort of brilliant job. They don't fit in the back of my mouth. I don't think they fit in the back of anybody's mouth. They're so poorly designed. And you got to take the charger with you wherever you go. It's, it, they're terrible in design. The Quip was designed, you can tell, by Denison designers working together. It fits in the back of your mouth, so you can get a good brushing at the back of your teeth. Uh, it, it vibrates uh, great for two minutes, get your teeth really clean every 30 seconds. It pulses, you can so you know it's time to move it in your mouth to a different location, so you get an even cleaning. It is great, and every three months, they send you a new brush head uh, on a subscription service. It is great. Um, everything is designed great with Quip. It works on a single AAA battery. You don't have to carry a charger with you. I just, I, I really do love this product. I've been using my Quip for two years. Well before I ever advertised for them on radio, I was using Quip because I like them. 
Uh, it generates great healthy toothbrushing habits. My dentist keeps thinking I'm bleaching my teeth. I'm not. Just on and on, I could brag about it, but see it for yourself. Go to getquip.com slash Erickson right now. You'll get your first refill pack free. That's your first brush head refill pack for free at getquip.com slash Erickson. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. Getquip.com slash Erickson. Start brushing your teeth with healthy habits with Quip. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. Uh, continuing to pay. We'll have news on that front coming soon. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, first of all, a uh, very personal note here. Uh, prayers appreciated right now for my wife and for the Green family. Our good, I mean, they are good friends. We we hang out on the holidays and, and the like. Uh, they live three doors down from us in our neighborhood. Our kids go to school. I mentioned uh, Sunday morning, uh, our friend Amy died uh, while taking a nap. Uh, her oldest son and, and our daughter are in class together. Her youngest son is a year behind our son. They play in the cul-de-sac together. We shoot fireworks for the 4th of July every year together. Um we hang out on uh, Halloween. We were together on Halloween this year. In fact, our, our son went trick-or-treating with, with um, the Greens. It just, it's it's thrown us for a loop this week, and, and Amy's funeral is happening right now. I'm here with y'all, and Christy has gone to the funeral, and just prayers for the Green family, please, here in Macon. Um, it, it's been a sad week around here, and that's happening right now. And now I, I, I need to apologize because I'm about to have a conversation and not with y'all. You you all get to eavesdrop on the conversation that I'm going to have. And, and it's, it's going to be a one-sided conversation because I know uh, that uh, people in the media are listening to this. I can trace the IP numbers. I know who's listening to this program, watching it on Facebook Live and, and YouTube and, and Periscope for Twitter and the like. I see who's watching. And I know members of the media uh, tune in. They float in and out. They keep this thing going. I'm sure members of Media Matters are waiting to breathlessly to, to take me out of context. But I, I need to have this conversation with the media. I, I want to play for you again the audio that I played of Dana Perino uh, before we went to the last break. Did no one on this planet told you Trump was trying to aid to tie an aid to investigators, yes or no? And he says, yes, no one ever told me that. And I think the Republicans will try to say, there we go. Now... We saw. I talked about polls earlier today. Like the the polls on impeachment are not going in the Democrats' favor right. at all. And well, maybe I shouldn't say at all. On the ones that we've seen so far, um, especially like in Wisconsin, an important battleground state, right. eight percentage points more than before. Do people say we don't think impeachment's the thing? That doesn't necessarily mean he's going to win, although he's up against all the other possible opponents. But I think that if you have a persuadable, you don't have many persuadables. Democrats are going to say he's guilty. The Republicans are going to say he's not. There aren't a lot of persuadables. What we do know is that in the swing states, impeachment is trending against the Democrats. In fact, support for impeachment has declined uh, as we've gotten more and more into impeachment. Even with Gordon Sunland testifying, now Gordon Sunland hadn't registered in polls yet, but even with all the other stuff, support for impeachment has gone down. And I need to play for you this audio. For those of you in the media, I, I put this on Twitter this morning, and it, it literally has gone viral. I, I've had it up there for three hours, and we're at like 10,000 uh, 
tweets and, and retweets and likes about this. Uh, Megan Kelly has pushed it out. Michael Shearer from the Washington Post has pushed it out. Lots of reporters are pushing it out saying, oh, maybe we have something to do with this. I, I need to play you this video. This is from January 20th, 2017, which is the president's inauguration through to the end of 2018. We, we This doesn't even get into current impeachment. I need you to hear this audio and understand, members of the media, why no one is taking impeachment seriously. Breaking news. A bombshell. Today is a turning point. Today was historically bad for President Trump. Today was a turning point. A turning point. We're at a turning point here. The beginning of the end for the Trump presidency. We have another bombshell. Mike Pence might have to assume the office of the presidency. Rumblings of the word impeachment. Breaking news. Another bombshell out of the White House. I believe this is the beginning of the end. I do too. It's really the beginning of the end. He may be feeling the walls closing in on him. All the walls closing in on him. The walls closing in in on him. Breaking news, a new bombshell. One astrologer says this means the beginning of the end for President Donald Trump. Trump will resign. Trump is going to resign. Is this the tipping point? I know we've said it over and over. You think this is a tipping point? And over and over. This is a tipping point. And over and over. Breaking news, President Trump off the rails. It was the beginning of the end today. The beginning of the end. Breaking news tonight, new bombshell. This is the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end. The walls are closing in. The walls closing in. The walls closing in. Breaking overnight bombshells. This is a very dramatic day and I think it might be near a tipping point. Do you think this is a tipping point? December 1st, 2017, you can mark it down. This is the day that everything changed. The beginning of the end. Beginning of the end. The beginning of the end. The beginning of the end. The beginning of the end. We begin tonight with a bombshell. Donald Trump is in a lot of trouble. Trump is in trouble. The president will resign. Another hour, another bombshell. This is a tipping point. Trump's going down. This president could be impeached. Resignation. Resignation. I don't think this president is going to serve out his term. Mr. Trump will not serve out his term. He will not serve out his term. No way. Know how. Breaking news. An absolute bomb. Donald Trump is not. He's done. And it's over. It's over. The wall's closing in. The wall's closing in. This is going to be the Achilles Hill. Breaking news tonight. I expect Trump to depart. This week will be the watershed week. Trump is in big trouble. Trump's in a lot of trouble. It's a sign of a terrified old man who feels the walls closing in. The walls are increasingly closing in on him. Tonight, the walls are closing in. Today changed everything. This is the beginning of the end. Today, the biggest tipping point for the Trump administration. What historic day, the bombshells. He's underwater. He feels the walls closing in. Turning point. We may be at a tipping point. It's the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end. Another bombshell. 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 This is a bombshell. It is. (laughs) Y'all, that was, uh, that goes through, let, let me let me rewind. When is the last date? Um, it goes through September of 2018. September of 2018, before the midterm elections. And that was a two-minute, 20-second clip. Two minutes and 20-second clip of members of the media Talking about bombshell, 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 turning point, tipping point, turning point, tipping point, another day, another bombshell, another tipping point, another turning point. There once was a boy whose father asked him to mind a field with a flock of sheep. And as the sun rose in the sky, the boy became bored. He needed some excitement. So he ran down to the village screaming, Wolf, 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 there's a wolf eating the sheep. 
And the villagers rushed out to defend the sheep of this child from the wolf, and there was no wolf. And the boy explained that perhaps the wolf had run off, and the villagers went back to what they were doing. The sun got higher in the sky, and the boy became bored yet again and decided he would do this once more, and he ran to the villagers screaming, Wolf! 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 And the villagers gathered their pitchforks and their weapons, and they charged to the field to save the sheep, and there was no wolf, and the boy couldn't keep it together, and he laughed. He laughed, and the villagers were very upset with the boy, and they went back. And towards the evening, as the sun was getting low in the sky, and the sheep were resting, the boy looked, and there was a wolf, and he became fearful as he could tell the wolf was ready to devour his sheep. And the boy ran screaming with desperation in his voice, Wolf! Wolf! This time there really is a wolf! There really is a wolf! And the villagers heeded him not. They closed their doors and windows to his cries. They were not participating in his scheme again. He had done it before, and he had laughed at them. They would not be pranked again. And the wolf devoured the sheep. This is what the media has done. The media has become an Aesop's fable, a, a fairy tale we, we tell our children uh, for them to learn lessons from. The, the media has decided that everything in the Trump administration is outrageous, and when everything is outrageous, nothing is outrageous. Look at the story from over the weekend with Walter Reed Hospital and the President of the United States Going to Walter Reed unscheduled, surely something sinister is going on with the president's health. News stories continued through yesterday until Gordon Sunland's testimony. News stories continued about the president and his health, and surely there is some level of sinister cover-up. What is the White House not telling us? We can't believe the White House. The White House lies about everything. Doom and gloom. Hey, maybe there's a neurological issue. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's something. Do you know, according to some press reports, Melania Trump was under the impression her husband had had a heart attack and had not told her based on the media coverage of the obsession of him going to Walter Reed. When everything is outrageous, nothing is outrageous. There is a there, there's a theory in in uh, philosophy and religion that uh, why do we have uh, low moments? We have low moments because we would not otherwise appreciate the high moments. There are, there's medication out there for people who have uh, super highs and super lows. Um, that uh, there is medication that evens them out. And so people never really have big highs, and but they never really have big lows. That They become very even-keeled. And, and some people, given their reaction to the medicine, they, they really become immune to the highs and lows, and they, they never have excitement. They're, they're very, very mellow in all situations, almost zen-like. Nothing to excite, but then nothing to terrorize or depress. The media has essentially become a pill to the American public and we take it and it immunizes us. It inoculates us. It, it, it suppresses our system, our adrenaline, our emotions, our endorphins. It, we, we never get upset. We never get super excited because the media essentially keeps us ex upset all the time. The media essentially at all times 
tries to keep us fired up and outraged. And the reaction, the reality is that there are things that this administration does that really aren't that big of a deal. Think about how think about the smallest thing in this administration and how upset the media has gotten. And now consider that in the Obama administration, it is undisputed at this point that the IRS targeted conservative groups for harassment and blocked giving 501c3 status to conservative Tea Party groups because they themselves decided that these would be political groups opposed to the president. We had a situation where the IRS decided to investigate conservatives, audit conservatives, and otherwise punish conservatives uh, because they were opposed to Barack Obama in, in, during his administration. We have an inspector general report saying that they did not behave properly. We have an inspector general report saying they should not have done what they did. And where was the media outrage over that? This is a media that continues to maintain that there was no scandal in the Obama administration. We have a media that dismissed as kooky conspiracy theory the Operation Fast and Furious uh, plan of, of Eric Holder to give firearms to Mexicans that wound up getting a Border Patrol agent killed. And the media gave that a pass. And now in the Trump administration, the Trump administration it can't breathe without getting the media outraged. The, the, the Trump administration can't blink without the media getting upset. And if if the president tweeting hello, Kafifi, gets the media upset and, and spun up and they do three days worth of stories on a typo in a tweet, well, then people are going to start tuning out all the other stuff. You know, conservatives should be concerned about what happened with the Ukraine matter. If the president wanted Ukraine to investigate a political opponent, conservatives really need to be concerned about it. The problem here, I think, is that most conservatives aren't super concerned about it because they think the Democrats would do it or had done it uh, with Russia, with Ukraine. They really do believe that, whether there's evidence or not. And so they're not super spun up about something like this because the Democrats, they believe, already did it to Trump. Payback, turnabout, fair play. It doesn't help that the media has been so dismissive of concerns of conservatives, including Ukraine. Politico did a huge story just a year ago on how Ukraine really did try to help Hillary Clinton. And now the media is denying that that story even exists, that it's all Russian propaganda and PR when it's not. There, there was actually a tangible, relevant claim there. So to, to my friends in the media, and I've got a lot of friends in the media, and, and they're all frustrated that the public doesn't seem to care about impeachment. You're why the public doesn't care about this issue. You are why. You're why the public can't get worked up about it. You have made everything so outrageous, people can no longer get outraged. You have cried wolf for so long. That people, even if there is a wolf now, even if something wrong is happening, even if there is a bombshell, turning point, tipping point now, nobody's paying attention anymore because you've done it for three years and you overplayed your hand. Oh, one time more time because I, I like it so much and several people have asked, play it again, play it again, play it again, play it again. Here it is again. 
breaking news. A bombshell. Today is a turning point. Today was historically bad for President Trump. Today was a turning point. A turning point. We're at a turning point here. The beginning of the end for the Trump presidency. We have another bombshell. Mike Pence might have to assume the office of the presidency. Rumblings of the word impeachment. Breaking news. Another bombshell out of the White House. I believe this is the beginning of the end. I do too. It's really the beginning of the end. He may be feeling the walls closing in on him. All the walls closing in on him. The walls closing in on him. Breaking news, a new bombshell. One astrologer says this means the beginning of the end for President Donald Trump. Trump will resign. Trump is going to resign. Is this the tipping point? I know we've said it over and over. You think this is a tipping point? And over and over. This is a tipping point. And over and over. Breaking news, President Trump off the rails. It was the beginning of the end today. The beginning of the end. Breaking news tonight, new bombshell. This is the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end. The walls are closing in. The walls closing in. The walls closing in. Breaking overnight bombshell. This is a very dramatic day and I think it might be near a tipping point. Do you think this is a tipping point? December 1st, 2017, you can mark it down. This is the day that everything changed. The beginning of the end? The beginning of the end. 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 We begin tonight with a bombshell. Donald Trump is in a lot of trouble. Trump is in trouble. The president will resign. Another hour, another bombshell. This is a tipping point. Trump's going down. This president could be impeached. Resignation. Resignation. I don't think this president is going to serve out his term. Mr. Trump will not serve out his term. He will not serve out his term. No way. Know how. Breaking news. Absolute bond. Donald Trump is not. He's done. And it's over. It's over. The walls closing in. The walls closing in. This is going to be the Achilles Hill. Breaking news tonight. I expect Trump to depart. This week will be the watershed week. Trump is in big trouble. Trump's in a lot of trouble. It's a sign of a terrified old man who feels the walls closing in. The walls are increasingly closing in on him. Tonight, the walls are closing in. Today changed everything. This is the beginning of the end. Today, the biggest tipping point for the Trump administration. Historic day, the bombshells. He's underwater. He feels the walls closing in. Turning point. We may be at a tipping point. It's the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end. Another bombshell. 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 This is a bombshell. It is. (laughs) Yes, bombshell. 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 Happening now, right now, as I am. It is for those of you listening in delay. Eleven twenty-seven a.m. In the United States House of Representatives, Fiona Hill and, and David Holmes are testifying. Summary of his conversation, oh, which this is Jackie Spear talking. The They're on break. Bribery, where someone in office uh, requests from someone else something of value, the investigation, and then withholds the White House meeting and uh, the military aid. It's not bribery. The Democrats are twisting themselves in knots trying to say this is bribery. They should go with extortion. Do you know why they're not going with extortion? Nancy Pelosi kind of let this slip the other day on on why they're not actually going with extortion. It is because it's not in the Constitution. One of the, the grounds for impeachment in the Constitution is bribery. Well, they got some problems making that case. I'll tell you there are some other issues as well, some some problems here. Uh, listen to Sunland yesterday talking about Rudy Giuliani. Finally, at all times, I was acting in good faith. I was acting in good faith. As a presidential appointee, I followed the directions of the president. We worked with Mr. Giuliani because the president directed us to do so. We had no desire to set any conditions. We had no desire to set any conditions on the Ukrainians. 
Indeed, my own personal view, which I shared repeatedly with others, was that the White House and security, security assistance should have proceeded without preconditions of any kind. We were working to overcome the problems given the facts as they existed. Our only interest, and my only interest, was to advance long-standing U.S. policy and to support Ukraine's fragile democracy. Yeah. He didn't like working with Rudy. He didn't want to work with Rudy. He says nobody wanted to work with Rudy. He, he says that, that uh, Rudy Giuliani went around the standard processes. We need to dwell on this a little bit when we come back, play what he said. It sets the stage for today's hearings, the last public hearings before Thanksgiving. We'll get into the fallout here when we come back right here on The Eric Erickson Show. Well, we've got the House in recess here on the impeachment matter. Nancy Pelosi speaking. Let's listen to a little bit of what she had to say. Before you sort of fully embraced the impeachment inquiry and announced it, you said one of the reasons you were cautious about it was because the process you knew would be long, arduous, and divisive. And it turns out that you were, in fact, right. And it seems as if we're in this position. <laughs> well, but, just, but in the sense that, in the sense that, both sides are dug in, and impeachment has sort of taken on the tenor of being just like any other partisan dispute. And so I don't subscribe to that, so I, I can't even answer a question well, better well, predicated it's, 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 it's on that. Not a bi- there's not bipartisan support. Well, if the Republicans are in denial about the facts, if the Republicans do not want to honor their oath of office, uh, then I, I don't think that this should be char- we should be characterized as partisan in any way because we are patriotic. I take, so I what's your question? Oh, your question is, patriotic. We're not partisan, unlike the Republicans. As you try to make the case to the American people. No, the facts. Are, we we said we wanted to see the facts and we want the American people to see the facts. Whatever uh, decision is made, and it has not been made yet, whatever decision is made to go forward will be based on our honoring our oath of office not on the resistance to the truth of the Republicans on the other side. I think the sad tragedy of all of this is the behavior of the president and the defense of that behavior by the Republicans. Yes, sir. Madam Speaker, on uh, a different subject, uh, trade. What, what additional guarantee? Uh, they're going to the, to the North American trade deal. Yeah, so she's patriotic. Republicans are partisan, and they're not honoring their oath of office. Right. Here's a little more. That the truth will set us free. The president has said to me, the call was perfect. I said to him, the call was perfectly wrong. There's something very sad about all of this because the president is undermining and shredding the fabric of our democracy and the patriotism of so many of the American people. Trying to make this a, a, a ploy for patriotism, I don't think that's going to. Um, I, I I don't think that's going to work. I really don't think it's going to to work. Um, now, David Holmes is testifying before the committee. You will recall that Bill Taylor, the acting ambassador to Ukraine, said that he had an aide who could overhear the president talking to Gordon Sunlin on the phone and overheard their conversation. Uh, Holmes is that aide who he's testifying right now. Uh, We'll get to his live testimony here in a minute. He's resumed now talking. Uh, But this is him being asked about the phone call. Ambassador Sunlin placed a call on his mobile phone. 
I heard him announce himself several times along the lines of Gordon Sondland holding for the president. It appeared that he was being transferred through several layers of switchboards and assistants, and I then noticed Ambassador Sondland's demeanor changed and understood that he had been connected to President Trump. While Ambassador Sondland's phone was not on speakerphone, I could hear the president's voice through the earpiece of the phone. The president's voice was loud and recognizable. And Ambassador Sondland held the phone away from his ear for a period of time, presumably because of the loud volume. I heard Ambassador Sondland greet the president and explain he was calling from Kyiv. I heard President Trump then clarify that Ambassador Sondland was in Ukraine. Ambassador Sondland replied, yes, he was in Ukraine, and went on to state that President Zelensky, quote, loves your ass. I then heard President Trump ask, so he's going to do the investigation. Ambassador Sondland replied that he's going to do it. <laughs> oh boy so now here's what you need to know uh there are people casting doubts on uh mr holmes ability to overhear the president when the president was not on speakerphone how is this possible y'all i have personal experience with the president of the united states calling me at home uh, actually he called me and I was at a pizza restaurant. He called me on my cell phone and the president was loud enough that without being on the speakerphone, the people in a restaurant, the people at the booth next to us could hear the president on the phone talking to me. For those of you who know Ingleside pizza in Macon, Georgia, uh, there one night with my wife and kids and I get an unlisted phone number calling me and it's like nine o'clock at night. And if there's an unlisted phone number calling me that time of night, it's probably a big deal. So I answer the phone and the president comes on and it's your favorite president. It was Donald Trump. And we had a conversation in the pizza restaurant and you could tell remarkably the people at the booth next to us got rather quiet uh, as they realized there was a voice on the phone. Um, listen, the moment I heard uh, that David Holmes would claim that he could overhear the president uh, on a cell phone through the earpiece, not actually uh, him on a speakerphone. I knew that the story was probably true. I, it's like, okay, uh, we're, we're not going to go into details here. Um, how do I put this? Because I don't want to give this away. Okay. So I know someone who was accused of infidelity in his marriage. Charlie, if you're listening, you know this story. Uh, I, I know someone who was accused of infidelity in his marriage, and the person who accused him said that he liked to, to stay in one location but eat at a very specific restaurant, and that they would regularly stay at a, ho a certain hotel and they would eat at a specific restaurant. And... When that story was told, I immediately knew that this woman had to be telling the truth, had to be telling the truth, because uh, I, I had had people take me to this restaurant on multiple occasions, and I was not a fan of this restaurant. And um, when I asked, why are we meeting? Why, why are you bringing me to this restaurant? Their response was, oh, well, this guy likes this restaurant, so we presumed you would too. <laughs> he always wants to eat here. <laughs> and I, 
fucking you. I was like, oh my gosh, it's true. He really, he really. Uh, that is all I can say. I, one day, maybe I can actually tell that full story, but today is not that day. Let's just say that little things like this happen. Occasionally, you know, someone's telling the truth because they give a detail, a random detail. You're like, oh my gosh, I know that detail's true. And there's no way this person would know that unless it happened. Uh, and, and this David Holmes guy testifying before the, the House Intelligence Committee says that he could overhear the president talking very loudly on a phone, even though the president wasn't on the speaker. It's like, ah, that has happened to me with my family at a restaurant at like nine o'clock at night. Uh, by the way, it's just as a random aside, I was mentioning to someone in the white house a while back that this had happened and the look on their face of, uh, he's calling you directly without Madeline. <laughs> Madeline was his assistant until, uh, a, a couple of months ago. <laughs> It only happened one time. Every other time, you know, what happens when the president calls is, is uh, his assistant calls. Madeline was his assistant until recently. Madeline would call and, and she'd say, is this Eric Erickson? And I'd say, yes, typically I say, this is Eric. And she says, Mr. Erickson, this is Madeline uh, with President Trump. Please hold for the president of the United States. And you're put on hold and then the president comes on and you have a conversation with the president. It, it's it's kind of funny. Um, that's happened a couple of times. I was actually in the school line uh, picking up my kids from school and the president kept talking. And uh, the windows were down. It was, it was in May. I was at the end of school. It was like the last week of school. The president called. I'm in the line at school. And I got to raise the windows because he's on the speakerphone. And people are looking in my car like, that sounds like Donald Trump is on the phone with you. And yeah, I had to raise the window. It really, y'all, I got to tell you, I know a number of very prominent people who you would all know. Um, I've got one person who is is so famous that I keep him in my cell phone, but he's under a completely different name uh, that only I know. I don't think he even knows the, the pseudonym I've given him because um, he's super famous and he would get in a whole lot of trouble if people knew we were friends. <laughs> and so I don't even really let people know that we're friends, but I, I've got a lot of people in my address book and it's still always surreal to me. To have conversations with, with the billionaire CEOs and, and actors and actresses and the president of the United States. It's really weird. I'm just a guy in Macon, Georgia. I happen to have this microphone thing here in front of me, but I'm just a guy in middle Georgia. And yet all these people call. And it, I mean, yeah, it's, it's kind of cool, but it's also very, very surreal. It very much is. One of the people who calls me every once in a while, uh, who I've gotten to be friends with. In fact, I got to go teach him how to use his pizza oven. I, so I've got this random, just random, bear with me. I have a pizza oven. It's called a rock box, R-O-C-C-B-O-X. If you like Neapolitan style pizzas, if you just want a good outdoor pizza oven, I got to tell you, I love my rock box. Uh, you can, it's wood burning or propane. It gets up to 900 degrees. It can cook a Neapolitan style pizza in about a minute. It's fantastic. Charlie has just turned off the phone lines because he knows there's no point in any of you calling now because now I'm talking about cooking. <laughs> um, this thing is great. And I put up pictures and um, Secretary Perry called me at home. Uh, I was actually, I'm always in line somewhere. I was in, in line at Chick-fil-A uh, getting the kids food and, and unknown number calls. And I answer it and, and it's, it's Rick. And he and his wife, they've bought a rock box because they've seen my pictures online, but he needs my dough recipe. And I, I get these random calls. He called uh, the other day just to check on Christy. And he is, he's leaving. He is retiring. 
Y'all, Rick Perry is a good, good man. Uh, he and Anita are just dear, sweet people. Um, I love them dearly, and I, I don't get to spend enough time with him. It is remarkable that he and Nikki Haley are two of the few people to leave the Trump White House, and the president has nothing but effusive praise for both of them. And, and, and that's he deserves it. Rick Perry is a wonderful human being. He is a, a, a good Christian man. He cares deeply for other people, uh, regardless of party. He is leaving as Secretary of Energy. It is a staggering irony that Rick Perry is in charge of the department he could not remember that he wanted to kill. If you remember the debate moment, the oops moment, uh, he had three age, three cabinet-level departments he wanted to kill. Um, labor, I think, was one. Commerce was, or ag, one of them. And, and then the last one was oops, he couldn't remember it kind of killed his rebound on the debate stage, uh, killed his chance of becoming president. And Rick Perry uh, he became in charge of the agency, the cabinet department that he couldn't remember. He was the longest serving governor in Texas history. Uh, he became the most powerful governor in Texas history because he had served so long. He had appointed so many people to so many agencies, and they were all loyal to him. And they were loyal to him because he was loyal to them. But more so, he was a friend to them. Uh, random people will tell you that if Rick Perry found out about your situation, he was there to try to help. Um, I, we get calls all the time. I was I got a call from him at an awkward moment a couple of weeks ago, uh, and he was just calling to check on me and Christy, and just randomly. Uh, Anita, his wife, had seen something I had put on Instagram and just wanted him to call and check, and uh, she occasionally wants him to call and get recipes from me for different things. Uh, they're just, uh, y'all, I, I love this man dearly, and I am sorry to see him go. Uh, but it's time for him to go. Rick Perry has done his bit for king and country. It, it's time for him to go make some money in the private sector. Um, there are lots of progressives out there who don't like Rick Perry as a politician, and even they respect him as a person, and they should. All of you should, whether you like Donald Trump or not, whether you like Republicans or not. Rick Perry is a good man. He is a good man. And he deserves the praise he has gotten. Uh, December 1st will be his official last day. Uh, but he had his last cabinet meeting with President Trump yesterday. Uh, it is somewhat unfortunate, I think, that the uh, Gordon Sunland decided to try to drag Rick Perry into the impeachment stuff. It is beyond dispute that Rick Perry didn't know what was going on with withholding money from Ukraine. But uh, Sunland uh, says Rick Perry was involved in everything and that the president directed everything and everyone was kept in the loop and has tried to drag in Mike Pence. And Rick Perry essentially, what I think Sunland is trying to do is is essentially to say if you take me down i'm going to take you all down and it's not working for him the state department and the energy department both came out very forcefully yesterday after sunland's testimony and said that uh neither rick perry nor mike pompeo knew anything about what was happening and sunland directly mischaracterized their conversations with him and and with others if you will recall sunland yesterday in his testimony said that the state department was withholding documents from congress and they also withheld those documents from him and he was not able to review those documents before going to congress uh the state department basically said this is absolute BS that Sunland absolutely could have had access to those documents. Had he requested them, he never requested them. That was the problem. Uh, this is part of what has got everybody's hackles up in DC. Within my state department emails, there is a July 19th email. This email was sent 
This email was sent to Secretary Pompeo, Secretary Perry, Brian McCormick, who is Secretary Perry's Chief of Staff at the time, Ms. Kenna, who is the acting, pardon me, who is the Executive Secretariat for Secretary Pompeo, Chief of Staff Mulvaney, and Mr. Mulvaney's senior advisor, Rob Blair. A lot of senior officials. A lot of senior officials. Here is my exact quote from that email. I talked to Zelensky just now. He is prepared to receive POTUS's call. We'll assure him that he intends to run a fully transparent investigation and will turn over every stone. He would greatly appreciate a call prior to Sunday so that he can put out some media about a friendly and productive call, no details, prior to Ukraine election on Sunday. Chief of Staff Mulvaney responded, I asked the NSC to set it up for tomorrow. Everyone was in the loop. It was no secret. Everyone was in the loop. It was no secret. Sunland essentially trying to take out half the Trump cabinet uh, to save himself after his um, refusal to be candid and honest in his initial testimony behind closed doors. And the Democrats are seizing on this, but it's very much like the montage I played you earlier. The, the, the amount of people in the media saying, game over. Uh, no, no, there's not. Uh, and you can tell the Democrats are acting like it, even on stage here in Georgia last night. The Democrats behaving like they will be running against the president next year. And that, of course, feeds into the inevitability issue of they're inevitably going to pass articles of impeachment and inevitably it's not going to pass the Senate. Uh, They need to try something else now. Hello there. Uh, Remember, please text recipe to 33777. I'll have another one going out this week. I'm not sure what yet. I I did breakfast. I I do want to hijack my own program here at the end. Yes, I do. I I get to do this. Uh, So, you know, your bosses in radio are called program directors. And and the, the one downside, I guess, of doing a syndicated show is I have lots of bosses in that there are lots of program directors at lots of stations who have strongly held opinions on what to do or not do in radio. Um, Abby's the only one I care about. <laughs> and Athens. Um, she's fantastic. I, you know, they're all great. But uh, on my other radio show, one of the things they tell us, don't talk about cooking. Please don't talk. I talk about cooking. I, I'm, I'm going to do a cooking show one day. Um, but I'm not going to send out this recipe. I'm just going to tell you. Your turkey. I have a tip for your turkey for Thanksgiving. For your turkey for Thanksgiving, particularly if you're putting it in a smoker, but if you're roasting it as well, get a gallon Ziploc bag, fill it with ice cubes, and right before you put it in your roaster or put it on your smoker or even fry it, lay a gallon bag of ice cubes over the turkey breast for 30 minutes. Now, why? Well, the dark meat in your turkey needs to come up to about 170 degrees and the dark and the the white meat to 160 165 uh, so you've got a temperature variable there assuming your turkey is thawed out properly because you've kept it in the fridge or you've you've 
put it in a brine or what, um, you, you got to do something. And the way you do it is lay that ice bag a gallon. Again, it's got to be a gallon filled up with ice cubes, lay it over the breast. That's going to lower the temperature of the breast. You got to do it for about 30 to 40 minutes though. That will lower the temperature of the breast enough to offset uh, that the breast cook at a lower temperature from the, the thigh and the legs and the dark meat of the turkey. Uh, so you won't get a dry breast and have juicy, uh, juicy, thighs, ju- juicy dark meat. Uh, you just, you, you want to lower that temperature a little bit. And that's the, the easiest way to do it is, is put that ice uh, pack over the breasts. Now, uh, I think now that I'm talking about Thanksgiving, so I have a really good gravy recipe. It's actually what I'm known for. When I wrote my book, and, and again, I got to get copies of my book to give away on the radio. Um, but I wrote a book in 2016 after nearly dying. I, I wrote a book to my children of life lessons that I would want them to know uh, if their mom and I did die, now, particularly if, if I died, because um, I very nearly did. And part of the end of the book, the last chapter, are recipes. Uh, They're my kids' favorite recipes. And I am known for my gravy recipe, which people are super intimidated by how to make gravy. And it is freaking easy, people. It is so easy to make an amazing gravy. In fact, I, I will not do any Thanksgiving cooking this year. For the first time in probably 10 years, I will not do any Thanksgiving cooking. Uh, but I will be in charge of making the gravy still. And so I will send out my gravy recipe. It's easy and it's fantastic. If you want it, text recipe to 33777. Uh, Do it now, though, because I'm going to send out my gravy recipe in the next 30 minutes on the email list, and you're going to want it for Thanksgiving. You'll thank me later for it, and I will talk to you guys tomorrow.